Welcome to Wine and Murder Night, podcast where two friends discuss and drink about their favorite cozy murder mysteries. I'm Carolyn Wilkie. And I'm Sabrina Malshausen. And this week, we're continuing on with Midsummer Murders. And frankly, I'm being murdered by the heat right now in my living room because my building doesn't have air conditioning. It is currently... 76 degrees Fahrenheit in my um, in my flat, which is a little warm, but not too bad. I hate you so much. I hate you <laughs> so much right now. <laughs> it is it is well into the 80s, probably in my in my apartment uh, because again, I don't have air conditioning, and that's perfectly fine for most of the year, but not when it's almost 100 degrees here, which it isn't frequently, but has been this week. Yay. Maybe invest in one of those movable air conditioning units. Uh, my windows are a non-traditional size. No, not no, no, not an, not an in-window unit, like one of those movable ones that actually sit, and you just put a little like uh, vent thing. When my I live in a townhouse in South Carolina, and my air conditioning stopped working, so they gave me one for my upstairs because my downstairs had a fan. Um, and so they gave me one for my upstairs to, so I wouldn't suffocate in my sleep. And it's just, the tube goes in the window and you can finagle it. And then the air conditioning sits inside and you just have to remember to empty the water every once in a while. Technology, man. I know. Technology. Definitely not 90s technology. Fortunately, no. I I bring it up because I am a little punch drunk, even though I have not had any wine yet tonight. Uh, (laughs) I just poured my first glass because I haven't been sleeping particularly well. So I watched Midsummer Murders yesterday while not having slept very well. And then uh, now I'm going to review Midsummer Murders while drinking and not having slept very well. I haven't probably had a good night's sleep in about two and a half weeks. So oh, no. because of the heat, because of the heat, it, it generally my room has been hotter than I like it just to sleep. And it's just been awful, but not as awful as community theater. Amateur. Amateur theatre. <laughs> not community theatre. It's just amateur. Which is fine. Joyce does a lot of amateur everything. She does a lot of amateur sketching, and that is pure village. I would stay I would stay with my uh, my late boyfriend. He was not an ex. We we never stopped dating. He just passed away. Um, but um whenever I stayed with him over the summer or whenever I visited him like I would go to Cambridge. Um, he was he went to St Andrews while I was at Cambridge, and we would switch when we would visit each other. But um, I would often go um, up to Yorkshire to his estate, and I learnt to do so much <laughs> because uh, like I learnt um, to paint, and I learnt moderately to play the piano. I'm rubbish at it, but I learnt moderately. I went on sketching tour. I took photography lessons. I was definitely the youngest member of the book club. Village life is all about trying not to get bored. And Joyce does it really well. <laughs> jo- you, you, were, you were a Joyce for a summer. So before, I was. Before, Many summers. <laughs> before we get re- really, really deep into the nitty gritty, uh, what are you drinking tonight? 
I am drinking a Bordeaux Blanc, in fact. Um, it's called Camulette. The French are really good at wine, um, as, as we know. And this is... <laughs> as I'm sure they will tell you. Yes, they're good at many things. The name of their... What? The name of their sex tape? <laughs> yes. I'm learning. I'm learning. Anyway, so I'm drinking a Bordeaux Blanc. It's called Camulette. It's actually from Lidl. And it was only $7, but it's actually quite good. That's pretty good. I am drinking a quite smooth Oregon Pinot Noir um, called Unconditional from Battle Creek Cellars. It was on sale, and the wine guy recommended it to me. So I'm having... I think I will have a good evening, even though I have not slept very much. I'm a teacher, so I'm a very poor person. <laughs> but also my mother buys all my groceries <laughs> for me. <laughs> If the wine is over $10, she still does. I'm 32, <laughs> and she still buys all my groceries. Um, thank you, Mom. I mean, honestly, in Texas, I really tried to stay under $10. Mm-hmm. Here, everything's more expensive, so even wines that I used to buy for $10 or less in Texas are generally over 10 here. Yes. So I've had to adjust my expectations. Georgia has a very low cost of living, so... Um, yeah, you can probably get some really good stuff for around $10. Yeah, not as low as South Carolina where you don't have to pay taxes on food. Mm-hmm. So, um, but southern states generally have a lower cost of living, and that includes Texas, I suppose. Minus Austin. Austin yeah. But, um, well, the thing is that it's really easy to get food and food products, food-type products there. And that's what makes a lot of that costing better. In the grocery store, anyway. But shall we jump right into it, now that we have... Of course. Today, we are reviewing Midsummer Murders, Series 1, Episode 3, Death of a Hollow Man. Written by... The screenplay, written by the I know! I... Well, so I was going to talk a little bit about that at the very, very end, but I definitely was like... I could tell this was written by, or I, I could tell something was different about this particular episode, like almost from the start. Mm-hmm. And in part, the start is this like beautiful choral music, and we see a woman praying to uh, Virgin Mary and child, and mm-hmm. and she's brutally murdered from behind. The note I have about this is, I said, "This is a this is America opening." <laughs> And like, I don't know what made me think of it. I was like, not, not a hundred percent Sabrina, because <laughs> it's a white woman who's being brutally murdered, not a black guy getting shot in the back of the head. But it was the choral music and then the abrupt being beaten with a crowbar, mm-hmm. you know? So her body is dumped into a stream and then we go kind of straight into like, la 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 la, normal midsummer murders. Here's the Barnabies at their table discussing Joyce's newest hobby. Avatar theatrics. And I honestly, I think this is one of the better Joyce episodes. Like this was a really good Joyce episode. Yeah. The actress did really well this episode. Yeah. She is... And she just had, she has great lines. You get a really good sense of her character and her family dynamics where you don't really get that. And that could be the, the, the author making sure that Joyce has given something good. You know? Yeah, well, so I didn't rec- realize before I watched it that the author had written the screenplay, but I definitely, there was, this 
episode felt different mm-hmm. in tone, in completely in tone mm-hmm. than the the other two that we had watched. And yes. and so I I thought it was a different director, honestly, at first. And so I didn't realize it was Caroline Graham until after I was looking up everything about the episode that I wanted to know. And so yeah, I think I think that's part of it. I think Joyce was a large mm-hmm. part of it because she had a little more well attachment to Joyce as a person. Um, and she's not the only character who gets this treatment either. I'm assuming that Joyce is our view into this world of Midsummer Murders. Like, she's not a police officer. She's a stay-at-home mum. You know, she's a housewife. So any person reading Caroline Graham's books would probably be a stay-at-home mum slash housewife. Mm-hmm. And therefore, Joyce would be their character that they would latch onto. It's every... Um, uh, Futurama fries us like mm-hmm. you know so we so every every good book has someone that the person could project themselves onto which is why though I love Lord of the Rings um Frodo Baggins becomes our projection obviously along with Bilbo in the and the Hobbit but um he doesn't mm-hmm. he doesn't write well enough he didn't Bless him. I'm covered in... Guys, I'm covered in Lord of the Rings tattoos. So the first person that writes to me says, <laughs> we're going to have a deep down. We're going to throw down. We really are. But he did not write well <laughs> enough for you to really get stuck in. So... Yeah. Um, and it will. He was, a, he was a linguist first. Come at me. Come at me. Okay. I don't disagree. I actually... I enjoy the Lord of the Rings books, but I don't love the Lord of the Rings books like a lot of people do um, yes. because I primarily I don't think it's a great story I think and and a lot of people give J.K. Rowling kind of shit because she wasn't like high literature mm-hmm. or like even the best children's author out there ever as far as writing is concerned but she was a master storyteller and my cat almost just fills my fucking wine <laughs> so you know See, this, this is going to be a long fucking week and a long podcast. This is fine. We can we can shut it down. Okay. So <laughs> the next intro the first real introduction we get to any of the characters in this episode is uh Harold sitting down at dinner with Doris, and Doris has served supper, and then he corrects her to say dinner. Dinner, mm-hmm. dinner is lunch. So I thought this was an after supper kind of rehearsal like they were the whole point was that he didn't want to be late to rehearsal and whatever and whatever and so my assumption was that it was it was evening and so I was very confused by this correction yeah not for amateur theatrics you're gonna have an afternoon rehearsal especially I think was it the dress rehearsal like so the the play isn't in a full run yet it's the full dress rehearsal that evening or whatever Mm -hmm. and so so that's what it is. It's an it's an afternoon rehearsal for the evening full dress. And the other thing I couldn't tell about this scene that confused me was whether or not Doris was his sister or his wife. N- nothing. She's nope. She's, she's related to him. Yes, she is. Win Stanley. She's the same last name. Yes, but I can't tell what she is. I think it's his sister. I think. Yeah, I think it's his sister because I, um, but. Harold is played by one of the five British actors. Cheerio, back soon. I don't know, somehow. I wish I love you, that's why I... Cheerio, not goodbye. 
See, he's not my five British actor. Who is your five British actor? I will meet her in a second. Oh. <laughs> oh, yeah. My, he is um, Toby Esterhase from all the old John le Carré um, TV miniseries. Remember, uh-huh. from last week, I love all spy things, so I immediately <laughs> recognized him. Well, so. there you go. There's, there's, there's a lot, I think, going on in this yeah. one, actually, as far as British actors are concerned. But I think, I think it's his sister. Yeah, I think so, too. So we go from there to the uh, playhouse, or I forget, the theater, and we meet David and Deir- Deirdre. Deirdre? I don't, they say it so weird. Uh, Deirdre, who's... And How else David's, would you say it? I Deirdre? But it's Deirdre. There's an E at the end. <laughs> yeah, it's an Ari, so it's a R. Deirdre. No, but they say Deirdre. Yes. No. <laughs> anyway, it doesn't matter. It's not a hard E noise in most languages. It's just weird. Dear, weird. Okay. Anyway... Uh, so he's in the he's in the play. She's a stage manager. You immediately pick up on his big giant crush that he has on her. Yes. DCI Barnaby is there too, painting sets. You rope your significant other into many many things. Nathan, <laughs> Nathan read so many books, and he was the subject of many of my amateur photography sessions. Um, he actually set me up a little photography studio in one of the big estates in Olds. So he set me up a little photography studio in what what we nicely called the bin because it was such a mess. It was a, it's a, it was a big room and we just threw our junk in there. So God, um, we had like six thousand year old um, beanbag chairs. It was it was amazing. Yeah, I was, I thought you were literally about to say six thousand year old art or something like that. Like. <laughs> in the house but not in the bin the bin was an embarrassment we locked that when we had company (laughs) so we also get to go uh, over to the local booksellers and we get to meet Avery and Tim and they are very obviously partners yes and then we head back to the theater and we get to meet Nico or Nico I guess they call him with a soft eye a hearty and a soft eye yes and he's a very dramatic young man, full of verve. And I was ready to hate him. I was ready to hate him. Oh, I love Nico from the beginning. And I didn't. I wanted to hate him so bad, but he was so charming this entire episode. I loved him. He was a good. He was a. Um, he was a good egg, as my my mother calls. Good people. Yeah. Do you say that? Does that yeah. Mean, Everybody say that? says that. Yeah, that's a that's a pretty common one. That's a pretty common okay. one. Okay. I was, I was scared. <laughs> I, was, I said that to someone and they were like, oh, that's adorable. And I was like, I yeah, no, it's a thing. I mean, it's, it is an older thing as far as I can tell, but it's definitely not unusual. It's not the, the like, most obscure idiom one can have. Yeah, good. <laughs> the other thing... That we get to learn fairly quickly here is that they're putting on a production of Amadeus. Could it? So, did you ever like? Have you ever seen Amadeus on stage, or have you seen the movie Amadeus either? I've seen the film. I have seen the. I saw the film, but I was quite young. Like, I mean, I, I was probably like sixteen-ish or something. Like, I probably watched it with my dad, and he 
looked, especially when he was in makeup, like the guy from the movie. It really, I, I couldn't get over it. I was like, wow, okay. Like, you're actually, like, what I can think of. Well, that movie wasn't too far. It was a, you know, it was an award-winning film, so it wasn't too far from the memories. Of no, but I just thought it was kind of funny that he was actually, like, that close in, in visage. Ah, yes. That close in regard. Yeah, definitely. No, it was nice. But the big deal is that Harold is, po- you know, pitching a pompous fit because most of his actors aren't there on time. Um, specifically his star. And he starts going into this whole spiel about how he was this director and he directed this famous guy. And it is very obvious from the way that Rosa, one of his actresses, reacts and is able to actually mouth the words along with him that he has done this. That was that was a really funny I, fucking love her. I fell in love with her from that moment. I was like, Rosa is a bad bitch. Rosa, I will ride and die for her. Like, Rosa is my girl. And Rosa is my five British actor. Cheerio, back soon. I don't know, I miss you. I love you, that's why I... Cheerio, not goodbye. She looked familiar, but... She looked familiar, and so I looked her up, and I... What I recognized her from was a different episode of Midsummer Murders. <laughs> yeah, that'll happen. They play multiple. But games. so Sarah Badel or Bedell, I don't know how you pronounce her last name. She is like, not only is she a five British actor, she's basically cozy mystery royalty. Like, not only has she been in two different episodes playing two different characters in Midsummer Murders, um, she was in. Uh, Murder Rooms, Mysteries of the Real Sherlock Holmes. She was in um, uh, Cadfail, mm-hmm. which is a, a monk-based cozy mystery. She was in um, one of the versions of uh, Hercule Poirot. Yeah, Poirot, the TV series. Nice. I mean, she has been in about a billion cozy mysteries. I was like, you should go on... Cozy Mystery Wall of Fame, ma'am. Cozy Mystery Wall of Fame. And I loved her. I loved her. And she was perfect in this role. Perfect in this role. Um, so after, of course, Harold delivers his speech, we get his star, Eslin, walking in with this much younger woman, blonde, voluptuous, on his arm, looks like... You know, looks like the much younger woman who dates the older man. And again, and she's really, like, as much subtlety as I, like, originally thought it had this scene. I was like, oh, well, they're just going to hit you over the head with this one. And that, like, Kitty's not a nice person. And, like, Eslin's not a nice person. Because there's very clearly a lot of friction between him and Nico, who we know is a nice person. And, like, uh, Kitty reveals that she's pregnant. And she, like, does it right in front of Rosa, the ex-wife. And, like on lose out all sorts of subtlety so cozy cozy murders are never ever ever well i mean i know that but like this episode was going there like this episode was ish no in the realm of cozy it was Uh, it was definitely on the subtle yes on a on a on a cozy scale it was a subtle episode ish but 
you also have to start throwing out red herrings. And so when you murder someone, who are you going to look at? You're going to look at the unlikable older man with his um, arm candy. You're going to look, you know. So when, when you, and you have to throw out these red herrings. He may or may not, he or she may or may not be the murderer, you know. So that's where, that's where Cozy Mysteries, you have to, you know, we already know someone's dead. Yeah. And we're already looking at people who could be murdered. Yes. This is definitely one of the ones that disconnects the opening murderer from the ensuing scene. Yeah. But we actually do find out in the very next scene who died, and it happens to have been Eslin's cousin. Mm -hmm. I would just like to point out that once again, Grandpa Death is not wearing a coroner's, like, suit to keep all his hair and DNA from contaminating anything. Um, They do correct that later in yes thing but i was just like come on grandpa well it's a small village you can probably discount his hair and dna <laughs> um not enough murders you know grandpa death isn't literally grandpa death <laughs> <laughs> like he's not like going around murdering everyone. that would be dci burnaby when he gets bored as we learned last time yes My next note is I am still not over Troy's hair. Yeah, you know, no, it gets more and more 90s as we go along. I feel like in the pilot they tried to, like, tame it just a tad. But in the last two episodes, it's just been, like, kind of floofy and curly. I like it. Yeah, it's probably humidity as well. England is a very humid country, and people don't realize that because it's humid and cold usually. But it's nobody's hair survives. Like, nobody. If you have even slightly wavy hair, you walk off and you're like, oh, I'm fucking done. Mm-hmm. Just done. So they were like, okay, you know, never mind. Troy, just go with it. Her- Let your hair be free. The Hermione factor? <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, so Agnes, the dead woman, her house is trashed. But they really just, you know, don't do anything about it. Like, I don't, like, I guess. They, like, talked to her neighbor. She mostly kept to herself. It was whatever. Anyway, Troy has to go pick up a book for his mother's birthday, which is really just a convenient excuse to get Troy back to interacting with gay people. Troy is such gay bait, too. (laughs) <laughs> Troy, Troy in his 90s hair. Like, I'm I'm really sorry, but in the 90s, that was just pure twinkness. Like, Troy is just a twink, and he he's needs too to big him. to be a twink. Uh, he's slim, though. He's slim, and he's got the youthful face. He does have the youthful eyes. face and the big eyes. Maybe it's just his oversized jackets. He's trying to hide, he's trying to cover his twink up. He's slim. He is quite slim when when you see him, like, out of his... Because he's wearing oversized 90s clothes. I don't know. The 90s were big. They were awful. Like, they were awful. Let's hide what we... Either that or super skin tight. There was no between. It was either volumes of clothes or nothing. Yeah, yeah. It was like we couldn't quite shake off the 80s. Yeah. There was something here that I was actually very curious about again, because I don't 
I don't, I didn't get the reference. Uh, this one, I feel like this particular episode had a lot more very, very British references that I didn't get. And it was so good. <laughs> this one, the uh, Avery, the, the main, main bookseller with his excellent waistcoats, was talking just, you know, patter, normal patter. And he was talking about different authors. And he was like, oh, yes, this one is done really well in the home counties. And I was... Home counties is central England. I don't know if you uh, know who Rupert, uh, Rupert Graves is. Not really. Like, the name is familiar, but I couldn't place it. Uh, he plays Lestrade in, in Sherlock. Oh! So he's home counties. Um, he's very home counties. He played... And he, he played in some other... Anyway, he's a fabulous actor. You should watch all of his stuff. Except for Sherlock. <laughs> uh. Except Sherlock. Um, but, um, but Home Counties is uh, Surrey. So it's south, southeast and above that. And uh, they're very... Uh, what can I say about the home counties? What can you say? They're very dull. <laughs> I was like, that's definitely, she's searching for a nicer word. She's searching for a nicer word. It's not going to happen. Um, they're, they're everything, they're the counties surrounding London in the south. Um, so they're very sleepy suburban towns. Well, that would explain why they recommended one of the books for Troy's mom. Yes. Colston, Colston is definitely <laughs> Uh, but it's too far from London, actually. Yeah, Colston is pretty south. Closer to Brighton. Yeah. Oh, since Colston is closer to, I'm assuming, closer to Brighton. Yeah. Um, it's not quite home counties, but it would be. We're in an actual place. Yeah. Okay, okay. Probably. So, from the bookshop, which obviously Troy does not buy a book there because he can't deal. Well, he also offered him, Troy has a point. He offered him a diary in October. A diary is a planner, not a not a journal. Um, so, like, here's a planner in October. Yeah. Okay, so again, that was lost on me. I thought it was, like, an actual, like, diary diary? Like, uh, a no, printed version of somebody's diary so, from this, like, what do they call it? Edwardian, Edwardian, Edwardian era that his mom was yeah, super into. A diary is a planner <sighs> and a... A diary, what you would call a diary, is a journal. Mm. So if I'm journaling, I'm writing in my diary. But if I have a doctor's appointment, I would put that in my diary, my planner. Okay. Okay. Well, but he still got his mom a goddamn car vacuum. Very true. Like, Troy being Troy got his mom a car vacuum, and she does not own a car. So they do go and talk to Eslin, because obviously he has a cousin who is dead. He's just a dick. Like, we knew that. Like, there's, like, I feel like there's very little gained from that scene other than him being a dick. Yeah. Um, So they do finally actually go to Agnes's house and, like, look at it rather than just stick around. Mm -hmm. And they find a bunch of Catholic imagery, um, a rosary, and... They kind of had known, I guess they did learn a little bit from Eslin, that they that she was a fairly, you know, a woman who kept to herself, and she worked for, um, like, I went, like, BBC or something, or, like, did a bunch of, like, in and out of the country kind of work. I thought Troy actually made a very, very insightful comment here. Like, this episode, this, so, much like Joyce, I felt like Troy got a little bit different treatment 
in this episode than the prior two when he was just a flat-out idiot. Yeah. He goes, perhaps she felt she didn't deserve beautiful things because she had was lacking self-confidence, according to her cousin. And this is like the first of a fair, several fairly insightful comments that Troy makes throughout the series, but he never realizes how insightful they are. And I feel like this is a nod to Colonel Hastings, Hercule Poirot's like, it's a, it's a nod to Watson, it's a mm-hmm. nod to Hastings. Um, and, you know, you have your, your dog's body mm-hmm. with you, or what Troy is to uh, Barnaby, who, through his country's simpleness, comes to these profound truths. <laughs> Troy isn't even a country guy. Like, that's the other thing is, didn't he, he came from a bigger city, I think. He did. He did. But when I say country simpleness, you know what I mean. From his simpleness. And what we would call in Texas is sweet. <laughs> uh, I suppose. <laughs> what the fuck is that? That makes it sound like he's gay. No. Like, because in Georgia, in Georgia, saying a man has a little sweet in him means he's gay. Oh, no, no, no. In um, Texas, when you want to call somebody stupid, but you don't want to actually call them stupid, you go, oh, they're a very sweet person. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> A man who has a little bit of sweet in him. They do that in Georgia too, but a man who has a little bit of sweet in him is gay. Well, see, that's a different context. You'd never say they have a little bit of sweet in them. You'd just say, oh, no, they're sweet. And you would be a little <laughs> condescending on the sweet. Oh, no, they're yes. sweet. Which implies harmless, I suppose. <laughs> and a little bit of simpleness. Um, yes. Quite a bit of simpleness. And, and Troy... He gets a little bit of sympathetic because of what happens later, which is sweet. Yeah. And I think the other thing, though, I think, much like Joy says, I think this is because Caroline Graham wrote this episode. Like, again, there's a lot more subtlety in this episode with respect to everybody than there has been in the first two. And it it has to be because Caroline Graham wrote it. Mm -hmm. I'm going to have to read her books. I really have it. Yeah. And... I'm obsessed with Agatha Christie, and she pings so much Agatha Christie in me that I'm really, like, going to have to read her book. We also find out that she left £150,000 to a donkey sanctuary. Which in the 90s is, like, $300,000. Yeah. Yeah. Like... Slightly more, actually. In the 90s? Uh... eh, Maybe. Well, the... The British economy has always been strong. In the 70s, um, my mother remembers when a pound equaled $5. Damn. So the pound has always been slightly artificially inflated. Mm-hmm. Well, so I mean... To keep the economy slightly... Good. I remember when I was in France in 2005, it was actually close mm-hmm. to two. I think it was something like 1.85. So it, was, it would have been around two. But the next thing we get is my favorite girl... Rosa, bad bitch Rosa, she's at Eslin's house. And she's, like, stalking around it. And I was like, oh, God, is this the moment where I'm going to have to not like Rosa? And then she keys Kitty's car. <laughs> what, what, what is she, what is that song? Oh, uh, think before you, uh, before you cheat? Yeah. <laughs> Carrie Underwood. <laughs> yes. I'm glad you knew. Oh, no. I was, I, I was having vivid, vivid. <laughs> Dug my key in the side of his pretty little souped up. Yeah. Souped up? 
Yeah. Four wheel drive, I think is how it finishes, but I don't actually know the words. Yeah, I'm not drunk enough to know yes, the words of that song. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's four wheel drive. Um, yeah, I mean, I I do say I will say I feel. But she also she also catches Kitty in a very yes. I will say, even knowing that again, Kitty had been a dick to uh, Rosa in the beginning. I do hate that again. We see the woman taking it out on the woman and not the dude who cheated on her. Yeah. And. Which is. Again, I'm going to take it as like a sign of the times. Like those nineties weren't particularly as, as much as, as far as feminism has had come in the nineties, it wasn't where it is today. And I, and the, okay, we got it. We got it. The showrunner was an absolutely misogynist and a racist. Oh, he was the worst. So Yeah. I mean, at, at best, he was a misogynist and a racist. So, of course, the showrunner is going to okay anything that pits a woman against a woman and make sure that there's no black people whatsoever. Yeah, no. And, I mean, I don't know if we want to go, like, full-on into this right, right now. No, not yet. No, no, no. I'm just saying, the showrunner okayed this scene because, of course, women hate each other, they're catty, they're bitches, and they take it out on each other. The men are blameless. They're just chasing after their right. Yeah. No, I mean, I will say, and not in his defense, because all the things that you just said were true, that's not an unusual thing to happen in any show set in this era, though. Like... I mean, I mean, of course. But I'm just saying, his was especially... Oh, yeah, no, he's terrible. He's a fucking terrible person. (laughs) So, other than finding out that... uh, Kitty is having an affair. Miss Kitty is having an affair. Kitty is, um, <clears throat> Kitty is stepping out. I, that is literally my absolute favorite British <laughs> Oh, she's stepping out on her man. And I don't know what the fuck that means. I guess she's stepping out of the house. <laughs> yes, because, you know, she's barefoot and pregnant. But, like... <laughs> hey, at least she can't get pregnant again. Yeah. <laughs> she's already there. Uh, so the other thing that happens at a kind of in, in you know, same time is that Esslin gets a phone call about Agnes's will and something about it has, has him upset. He gets a file and he opens it in his office and he like throws out his secretary and gives her the rest of the day off. And you look at it and it's a spreadsheet. <laughs> and I'm just like, literally the entire time I was watching that scene, I was like, Agnes has used spreadsheet. It's very effective. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Well, yes. So, uh, as you can imagine, the news that Kitty is having an affair goes over poorly. So, kind of like the next thing that we really see happen is that Eslin is basically telling Kitty he's getting a divorce. Kitty's sitting in bed, smoking, even though she's pregnant. And they didn't know in the 90s. I think they knew. My, I think they knew. No, my mother, my mother smoked into her first trimester. With me. This was the 80s. Yeah, that's, yeah, you're, you're not a 90s baby. Like, they knew no, by the 90s. 90. This was 1998. They knew by 1998 you don't smoke when you're pregnant. True, but whatever. She's not even first trimester yet. It's fine. <laughs> in England, in England, they say you can still have a glass of wine into your second trimester. They say that in the U.S. And now. Into your third. They say that. You know, well, they do. They they do. They actually they are they are relaxing their standards on that, specifically with certain things. 
because it's uh, more that the overuse of it is what they're trying to prevent. So obviously with some people, the doctors are going to take a little more hard line if they know your history and whatever, but like... Yeah, no, uh, I gotta gotta say, uh, I have no interest in being pregnant, (laughs) but um, if I ever am by accident, um, I'm stopping all that shit. <laughs> like living in a, a bio, a bio sealed container <laughs> for nine months. Please, please go away. Ten months, ten months, really. But I, I think, I think you would find you would not. Oh, I would, because a, um, I'd be pissed off <laughs> about being pregnant. <laughs> I would be very pissed off. Like, please, I don't know if you want to be around me. For ten months. I basically have this very large germ inside of me. (laughs) You don't want to be... I might be contagious. Yes. (laughs) I wish it were. I wish it really were. I wish I could sneeze on a man and he'd just be pregnant. Just so they'd shut up. Yeah, pretty much. So, she's like, oh, baby, please. But what was shocking to me is... It was very obviously he had hit her. Very obvious that he had hit her. And I, and yes. I was a little surprised it wasn't more remarked on in this particular scene. I was afraid it wasn't going to go remarked on at all, but it does. But it, in this particular scene, and then, like, oh, my God, it, it was a lot. It was a lot. Well, it was just, here is how awful Esloo yeah. is. He's going, to, <laughs> he's going to break up with his pregnant wife and also abuse her. Yeah. No. Fuck this dude. Sorry. Fuck this yeah. dude. But... We follow him directly to the theater, and it is opening night. Well, it's it's dress. It's full dress. It's final dress. Slightly different. but So it's a soft opening, not a hot Yeah, opening. soft opening. But Joyce is all freaking out about it. She's calling it opening night. Like, everybody's calling it opening night at this point. Oh, yeah, yeah, No, no, no. It's just um, the poster said final dress. Yeah, and... Uh, mm-hmm. Nico very casually mentions Macbeth. Mm, the Scottish play. That Scottish play. What are you saying? You said the name. I'm going to need you to pause, go outside, and it's three times anti-clockwise. They never answer the question, but it's anti-clockwise. Or, um, I don't know how, what do you say in America? Counterclockwise. Oh, thank you. So go right now. You said that damn Scottish word. <laughs> no, no. I don't think we need to be superstitious about our murder mystery podcast. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I loved it. I loved this whole like bit where you got to see like the villagers coming in. They had a packed house. Everybody was in kind of like fancy clothes. Uh, Doris was in this great little sweater with all oh, these sequins and like her little fascinator. I want Doris's sweater. I know. Jumper. I want her jumper. I want to wear it on Mardi Gras because <laughs> I'm a friend. I'm a French teacher and I actually do Mardi Gras. I bring king cakes and we have trivia and I crown the king or queen of the classroom. It's it's adorable. Anyway, I would wear that on Mardi Gras. Oh yeah, no, it'd be great. Uh, and I just thought this whole scene was so amazing and great. And I definitely got a, like, a Troy and Cully vibe for a second there. I did. 
And Troy instantly, like, I don't know if he's met her yet. because she's. I don't been, think he had. Cambridge. He's been off at Cambridge. So, of course, it's like, Troy is like, holy shit. Because I don't know if you know anything about Colston, but there's not really any lookers. There's no dish <laughs> in, in Colston. Well, I mean, so, you know what? Honestly, we've talked a little bit about this. Not so much with the English boys. You know, and, you know uh, Nico is fairly good looking, I say, but that's about as good looking yeah, as it gets. Yeah, that's about as good looking as it gets. I gotta say, Nathan was really tall and skinny and not, he had blonde hair and blue eyes, so he had that going for him. But comparatively, I mean, I've slept with hotter men. Many God rest him. Many God rest him. <laughs> many not hotter men, not British. So they're going through full dress. Uh, Eslin is playing Saltieri, the main part, the mm. the, the murderer of of Mozart. Um, yes, and he's just being. His general shitty self to pretty much everybody. Of course. Spitting out the cake that Deidre had left, uh, put together for the props mm-hmm. table. He sees Nico at comforting Kitty just a little bit because, it's again, obviously she's been smacked in the face. Um, and he thinks that they're the ones sleeping together. And so he's like, takes this giant ring and like stabs Nico in the hand during a handshake I mean, he is being a full-on shit. And obviously this is all interspersed with, like, backstage scenes of people, like, wandering to and fro from the prop table and the wings and stuff like that. So it's trying to give you all that, like, hints at who could potentially have done the thing that's about to happen. Mm -hmm. But before we get there, Cully was really bitching this scene. She was. She was a little rude. But she was a bit of a snob. And, um... As a fellow Cambrian. <laughs> Wait, is that how you um, say it? Yeah. No. I refuse. Yes. No. Sorry. No. Uh, may see. Um, but, uh... <laughs> I refuse this reality and I will substitute my own. <laughs> anyway. Um, she was a bit bitchy. And, you know, there is a, obviously... For uh, for people who went to Oxford, who are of the Oxbridge set, there's this like sense of snobbishness that I that is true. PT Dubs, it's not it's not that it's not true, but like it infuriates me as someone who did who had the blessing to go to such a prestigious university, but to have to suffer through that bullshit of the snobs that I had to go to school with. Love them. Love ya. <laughs> so she was a bit of a bitch there. And I'm yeah. Like, like Troy was trying to be nice and he was like, I've never been to the theater before. And she goes, this isn't theater. This is a theater. Like, fuck you, Cully. What the fuck do you know? You're 20. Also, that, is, that totally insults her mother. Right? Who is, like, all over this. Yeah, like, she said, yeah, it's not, it's, I guess it is, like, a very 20-year-old thing to say when you're, like, trying to start an acting career and stuff like that, but, like, whatever. Whatever, Cully. 
So we do get to possibly the best scene in this whole episode. Like, this was a great scene where the music swells and it's the end of the play and Saltieri lifts his razor straight in the air and Eslin dramatically cuts his own throat. I I loved it. I did too. This is, um, so to really show off my cozy mystery bona fides, um, this reminded me of Nair Marsh, who is in New Zealand. She's the, she's a contemporary of Agatha Christie. And she started out in the theatre. And this reminded me of one of the scenes. I've read all of her books. I'm, I'm going to be ashamed and admit that I got into them because I, I got into audiobooks mm-hmm. that were read, but that were narrated by uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, ashamedly. And I got into Nio Marsh through that. But um, I am actually a member of the Nio Marsh Appreciation. Um, I've written short stories for her newsletter because I'm a big old doll. <laughs> anyway. You wouldn't be the Sabrina that I know and love if you weren't. Thank you, love. And um, so I was, I was pulled back to Nio Marsh because this is such a her scene, like the theatre and this epic thing and suddenly like a prop gone bad. Who could it be? So, yes. Caroline, Caroline is a modern cosy mystery writer, mm-hmm. but you can tell that she appreciates the golden age. You can tell that she's read... Dorothy L. Sayers and Agatha Christie and Nio Marsh. Mm-hmm. And so you can tell, and if you're, you know, and she puts these nods in as a kind of, I'm with you, you know, kind of, hello, I too am a Dorothy <laughs> I, what I also appreciated about this particular scene was, this is where I could tell it was clearly written by somebody different. Uh, or like, or directed by somebody different. I, I could tell something was very, very different about the production of this particular episode because we had a throat slitty scene before. And that was like all sorts of blood spurts everywhere. And this was so beautifully dramatic with the backlighting or, you know, the shot of him behind, like from behind, like with the drama and then just toppling over and Joyce's scream. I mean... Her two short screams, her her very two short screams, which was so good acting on Joyce's part, like such good acting on that actor's part, because she goes, <gasps> like she's just realizing that it was a for real. Crime. Yeah, it was. This was a fantastic fucking scene. I thought this. I thought mm. this. This episode. I have been very pleasantly surprised by the quality of acting. In this mm-hmm. uh, this episode, and and of course we mentioned it the episode before too, but this one I think was again just that subtlety a little bit. Like Deirdre was fantastic. Like I she had just mm-hmm. she looked like a real person to me. Like she, it wasn't clearly it didn't feel like an actor playing a part. Like it was like a real person that you probably have met before, kind of awkward and like shy and just wants to do her best and doesn't understand why some people yell at her. And like <laughs> she like she felt like a real person. Mm-hmm. And um, this next scene, too, where they're going around and interviewing people about the murder. Um, 
And one of the main things that I I was recognized here was, and this skipping ahead just a teeny tiny bit, but like when Rosa was being interviewed, like she was crying about it and she was talking about how much she loved him. But at the same time, you could tell it was a little bit of a fake cry. Mm-hmm. I just loved it. I, I thought, oh, I just loved it. I loved everything about Sarah Badel. But I, really, this whole thing, this this episode felt so... Agatha Christie and maybe I had just I think I had just finished I'm every summer I just read Agatha Christie novels I don't my brain just goes to mush I'm just like fuck it whatever Agatha Christie (laughs) (laughs) but I really this whole thing really did feel very Agatha Christie in a good way Mm -hmm. like like all the characters were very well done but what was weird is even in their subtlety they were still tropes mm-hmm. but they were they were good they were really well done you saw nico as the beleaguered understudy of eslin who is this egomaniac and then kitty who is overwrought as the younger lady and rosa is the spurned ex-wife but each one of them played their part so subtly that it was really good and then you know Doris and Deirdre are two put upon women by Harold, who is this uh, this form, this man of his former glory, and that is where. And so these are all tropes that are as old as time, but they did so well here in this episode. Obviously, Barnaby and Troy are their own trope, but they continue on. But everyone did their trope fantastically, and that's why tropes work because. You can have really bad representations of the trope. Mm-hmm. Sherlock. <laughs> Every character in Sherlock yeah. is a trope and they're all terrible. Or you can have really good representations of the trope, like this episode of Midsummer. Yeah, no, this this is fantastic. And, the, and there were little details, too, that I thought were really, really well done. Not just the writing, like Harold's waistcoat and like his tie. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, it was it was perfect. It was fucking perfect. And his hat. Yeah. And his hat, and how Avery always looked like he had those hand, like he looked like he made his own vests. And it, it mm-hmm. very much demarcated him as like the more flamboyant of the gay duo. But without him having a lisp or having these like very, like, without him being such an over the top kind of stereotype. So I don't know if it's just the British um, need. For not ever being over the top. British people don't brag very much. They're not very flamboyant. I mean, obviously you have exceptions like Elton John and Freddie Mercury, but that's that's something different. Mm-hmm. They did that on purpose. But like You can generally like exclude performers from the Yes. British men in general are very subtle. Except when they drink. (laughs) Or if they're sports fans. I mean, yeah, but hooligans are hooligans. So, you know. Yeah. Bless them. So we get one of my... uh, This is the scene that made me really, really like Nico, is that when Avery's pouring his heart out to him. Because Tim was kind of a snippy bitch during the dress. Mm -hmm. And so Avery confesses that he thinks he's having an affair or you know, stepping out with somebody else. And it fucking frustrated me just as a general observation, because 
gay men are self-conscious about that, especially if their partner hasn't been 100% gay their whole life, which if they're going to perform heteronormativity until they finally have the guts to come out and be gay, you can't hold them accountable for that. Well, so I really love the scene as a backstory building thing and as a fear, I thought, you know, as a, that would potentially be a very real fear. That's something I've heard from, like, I'm bisexual. And that's something that not anybody I've dated has ever expressed. But I, you know, when I came out to a friend of mine, and this is back when I was in our 20s, like, we were in our early 20s. So obviously very different kind of mindset then. But he, I was like, we weren't like, we were just talking about it being, you know, I came out and I was saying, oh, well, I'm bisexual when I'm dating this girl. And he was like, yeah, I don't know if I could ever date somebody bisexual because they might not want to be with me, just me. And I'm like, that's not necessarily how it works. <laughs> but it's... it's There's a difference between... Yeah, it's like, okay, well... So there's... Tim's with you now. So if you even, like... Yeah. But it's a fear. It's so a real it fear. And I can, I can understand understand where it comes from especially if your partner is acting shady or snippy or whatever like tim was doing i really loved the scene because it was a very very genuine moment where Mm -hmm. two friends were very much leaning on each other like nika was being a great support to avery and you can see that support is reciprocated throughout the episode and like it was just a very very genuine positive portrayal of friendship between two men that I think a lot of shows, especially in this time period, were never able to, didn't necessarily hit correctly when it was a straight man and a gay man. Yeah, and I think, well, it's that you don't see that a lot in general in any, even nowadays, you don't see a lot of, it's difficult to do, and I think because, um, I don't know anything about Caroline's history, I'm going to have to read up on her, she made gayness sympathetic and she showed that gay people have the same kind of fears and wonders and it's not just about is Tim gay or not but is Tim stepping out on Mm -hmm. like and it wasn't even like and it just added that is Tim stepping out on me with a woman thing but she wrote she there tends to be a lot of gay people in some of Yeah. And she, she she can write them very well. Yeah, and, and this is the second episode in a row where there's a very sympathetic gay figure. And pair of figures, really. And exactly. that's pretty great. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, stuff happens. Nico's in love with Cully, basically. Uh, David's in love with Deirdre, basically. Troy comes... Troy again... <laughs> is forced to confront his own homophobia by interviewing Tim and Avery, who, who are sitting down to a lovely midday lunch with wine. God, sometimes I wish my life was like this. <laughs> that you owned an old bookshop. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I do. Where, where were they? Uh, I don't remember. I think this might actually just be Costin. No, I think it's I think it's a midsummer. I don't remember. I, I did not catch which one this was in. So they basically learn a couple of things that are really not particularly helpful all at once. But they then go to interview Colin Smy, who is David's father, who missed his appointment at the police station. And they get to Colin's house and he just like full on confesses to the murder. 
this again is a good Troy moment. Like Troy picks it apart. Troy and DCI Barnaby just pick it apart. But it's also really bad procedure. Like he doesn't warn him. He doesn't uh, share his like basically Mirandize, but it's something. It's called something caution. He doesn't caution mm-hmm. him. He doesn't like. And I was like, oh, that's bad procedure. And none of this would be admissible <laughs> in later. <laughs> Because he didn't caution him. Yeah. And when you don't caution someone, immediately... Well, I mean, I think part of it, though, is that they knew it wasn't true. Right? Like... Yeah. They were never planning on charging him. They were never planning on charging him. A good detective always covers his tracks. Just in case. And it it just let me down. There was, like, I was like, eh! Because I've also been watching a lot of modern... (laughs) You know, yeah. murder mystery shows. And I'm like, ooh. And the, the killer always gets away on some technicality and blah 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 Yeah. So, you know, that's why I was like, oh, bad procedure. <laughs> well, I mean, the thing is, we Colin obviously only confessed because he thought David did it. Which... Yes. I did, too. But apparently, no, all David did was shake Vim all over the cakes that Eslin eats. Mm-hmm. What is? Do you know what Vim is? I don't know what Vim is. Yes, it's a cleaner. It's a cleaning product. So I almost mm-hmm. like he probably could have gotten poisoned by that, right? Yeah, that was, seems like a bad revenge plan, David. But my absolute favorite part of the scene is once again we get the patented Troy finger point. Don't do it again. Yes, <laughs> I love it. I love, I love it. it. I love it. So then, of course, like they've. They basically come and walk out of it. They're like, okay, we've ticked off basically everyone. We have no suspects left. So they go to talk to Kitty, who is, after basically throwing a, a portrait or you know picture frame at Eslin the day before, now crying into her handkerchief with her perfect red lipstick. And to be honest, I was like, okay, Kitty's kind of a bad bitch. So she's pregnant, recently widowed, and, like, she's sitting there in this sheer top and looks, like, fucking amazing, playing up the widow in such, like, a fantastic manner. I loved it. I loved it. I was like, all right, Kitty, you, you get you. You get you. But they basically eliminate Kitty from contention as well. Yeah. And in the meantime, they get a tip about Agnes's van. So remember her? Agnes? She died. The actual murder victim, you know, whatever. Yeah, the first murder victim. I mean, it is Midsummer Murders. There's always two at least. This is a great little bit of comedy as well. Uh, Barnaby goes and gets a bacon sandwich. Troy is left like opening a bunch of garages with his key until like another cop, like just a normal beat cop pulls up and he's like, so uh, breaking and entering, are you there, guy? I mean, Troy's in a fucking suit, but. I love, I love Troy pulling rank. And this was so good. Like, like, go ahead and open all these. <laughs> it was pretty good. But they finally find Agnes's garage. And inside of it, we find a secret Madonna! Which, apparently, Agnes was so Catholic, she just kept it in her garage. Ah, but then we have, hmm, this looks like an expensive Madonna. Ah. Mm-hmm. Secret art smuggling! So... We then get, you know, just a couple more, like, filler scenes before we actually figure out anything that's going on. So, Nico has gotten into drama school. Yay! 
Um, Harold goes off to try and cast Nico as his new leading man. Mm -hmm. Um, And in one of the more odd scenes that I, again, things I didn't get, uh, Doris, like, grabs his, like, not finished plate and, like, starts shoveling the food into her mouth. Um, well... I don't understand it either. She might be old enough to remember um, rationing. And that could be the only explanation I have. The only thing I was thinking of is because we knew Harold was involved in potentially buying a new theater or Mm -hmm. was that he'd spent all of his money on that. And so like they didn't have enough food in the house. And obviously he got the bulk of everything. And so she like basically starved herself to please him, which Yes. Is a lot to glean from one teeny tiny scene. Yeah, I was like, I don't know. Maybe she's just old. <laughs> that scene is set, like, I feel like if there's one thing I could cut from this entire particular, or if there's one thing I could flesh out, really, from this entire thing, is that relationship between Harold and Doris. Yeah. If you're confused if it's her, your sister or if it's a sister or a, the wife, that needs... That relationship probably needs a little bit more fun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just a tiny bit. So eventually, we finally get at, at the police station some info from Agnes's bank. Apparently, she has donated almost a million dollars to various animal charities, million pounds to various animal charities. And so they kind of figure out that she clearly had to have been doing art on the side. Oh, yeah. And that's the only way she could afford all this. And that the reason that Madonna didn't get dealt was because it was Madonna and she's too Catholic to function. Mm. And then Troy says something smart. And it is Barnaby's aha moment. What what does Troy say? Troy goes, (laughs) oh, it sounds like she needs some fright. Like she needs to pay for fright. Basically implying that Doris, or that uh, Agnes must have had a partner in crime in Mm -hmm. importing and exporting all of these priceless arts. Which, as we know, Barnaby and Joyce had the conversation at the beginning of the the show, how is Harold affording all these new costumes? Mm -hmm. He does import-export. And it's the 90s. The economy is booming, as we discussed. Yeah. I thought that was kind of funny that he literally said the 90s. The economy is booming. And we had like, yeah, we talked about that. <laughs> so this is, yeah, this total full-on aha moment. They get in the car. Sirens blare. They are off to Harold's house. Dun, dun, dun. And just in time, because Doris has found the razor. And Harold <laughs> has come home. As one can expect, Harold is like, no, I'm going to fucking kill you because I'm a murderer. And she's (laughs) screaming. They get there. They, like, basically save her and then convince Harold, who's very clearly a delusional man and and in the technical version of insane and, you know, insane man, Mm -hmm. that the press is waiting for him and he has to go with the police so he can meet his press. And he puts on his hat. And... They walk out. And then all we've got left is the button on the episode where uh, Barnaby reveals that Esalen was blackmailing Harold. And mm-hmm. he makes a joke about the theater. 
And once again, we get no justice because he says charges will never stick because he's too insane. And he's the proper, he's the proper insane. You can be insane and still stand trial because you understand the difference between right and wrong. Although I feel like if they went to court and argued it, Harold would very much know the difference between right and wrong. Yeah. It was just, it was a third episode in a row. We don't have justice or the system working for yeah. justice for the victims. Yes. That was a little disappointing. Uh, yeah, it's very true. Which is, it's so weird. Um, Harold, Harold is wealthy. Um, but I do feel, I mean, Doris is probably the one who is going to inherit, like, either as sister or wife, she gets something. Yes. As sister wife. <laughs> Gross. Oh, what was I going to say? Oh, she doesn't get anything because they're all proceeds of crime. Uh, well, fuck. Now I'm, like, depressed about Doris's standing. <laughs> Why would you do that? I'm so sorry. Did you figure it out? I did. And here's why. Time meddling. When Deirdre comes from her loo break and Harold gets onto her about how did you miss the three minute warning? Deirdre looks at her watch and is about to say, but it's only been two minutes. Whenever someone meddles with time, thank you, Agatha Christie, (laughs) <laughs> that is the murderer. And I was thinking particularly of Grenchild's Folly, where they kill the person and then, or they poison the person and then make it look like she's been killed later. Which is messing with time. Mm-hmm. And the other reason I knew it was Harold is because the person who does the time meddling in Grenchild's Folly is an actor. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. I'll be here. <laughs> no, but seriously, it was the first one where I really figured it out. Like as soon as Harold got on to Deirdre about the um, about the time, I was like, "Haha, he's trying to establish an alibi for himself." See, I I realized that was a clue, but I fully expected it to be like, "Oh, there's a broken clock" or something like that. Like I didn't expect it to be like he just full up straight up lied about how many minutes it had been. Like, I thought it had, it was going to have some extra significance and kept waiting for that shoe to drop. It's, okay, here's the thing. You say uh, a clock must be broken. So you immediately say, oh, my watch must be wrong. Of course the director would know what time it is. Yeah. I'm the stage manager, so my time, my watch must have been Especially wrong. with somebody like Deirdre, who is a very forgiving yes. type of character. Yes. So, but we all do. Mm-hmm. Like, this is why I, I don't like that I have to punish my students for being tardy. Mm-hmm. Because, like, my watch isn't set on school time, because school time is weird. It's liminal space. <laughs> so, like, it doesn't exist. And since time is so arbitrary, obviously Deirdre would be like, well, obviously Harold has the correct time. Also, Deirdre was dealing with her... That, Deirdre was dealing with her father. Mm-hmm. She probably would have been like, oh my god, I lost track of time because I was worried about my dad or whatever. So she... And we can do that. We can manipulate people's... I say we, but anyone can do it. We can manipulate people's um, perception of time because time doesn't exist. Time is meaningless. <laughs> This episode just got very existential. Well, I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to get 
Existential. I guess that's postmodern. That's how much wine yeah. we've had. Postmodern amounts of wine. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, but it really is like Harold would use his authority to that extent. So anyway, that's why. That's how I figured it out. I was like, anyone who messes with time in a murder mystery when the timings are already weird because of editing and you don't always get all the information, but when there's a definite messing with time, that person's trying to establish an alibi. And that person's a murderer. It doesn't always work. That's sometimes a red herring. Yeah. See, I was I was fully expecting it to be... I was fully expecting it to be David, and it was to be like, he loved Deidre, so everybody who was addicted to Deidre was going to die. <laughs> True, but Harold would have been the first victim. Though. I think Harold, I, well, I expected Harold to also die. Like, I kept waiting for that shoe to drop until Colin confessed. And then I even expected it to happen after Colin confessed. Like, I expected there's an entire scene of Harold, like, happy as a clam driving back to his house like right before the end of the movie and i expected like david to like fucking kill him then i i i thought i thought david was the was the dude interesting did you like this episode um yes i really did i really did i really liked it better than the first two that we've seen for sure mm-hmm. and i oh yeah definitely and i think it's it's that third episode trick where <laughs> You know, things get better after the third episode in any show. Minus, minus Sherlock. <laughs> well, I was literally just talking about this today. I was listening to a new podcast and I was like, uh, I wasn't sure about it on the first two episodes, but then I listened to the third episode today and it was a lot better. But I think it was because Caroline Graham wrote this episode. I it, there's, there's a very different tone to it. And I looked and it does not look like she wrote any other episodes at all. And that's sad. She is 87 years old. I'm really glad she got to see Midsummer Murders grow into what it is. Yes. I'm sure she gets a kick out of it. Oh, absolutely. But her education, interesting. She has a master's degree in writing for the theater. (gasps) Maybe maybe she specifically asked to write this one because of her theater background. Mm-hmm. Maybe she had just gotten her master's and was like, can I write <laughs> <laughs> I mean. <laughs> I hope so. So, did you like your wine? I actually did. Um, I don't get to drink a lot of Bordeaux Blanc because they're not in credit. Bordeaux, obviously, is always a red wine here in America and in England. I can't drink red wines. They make me incredibly ill. Um, so I'm always on the lookout for white wines. And this one was very good. It was very smooth. I think I'm going to go have another glass. Wine Spectator gives scores out of 100, but I don't think we're nuanced to do that. So 1 to 10, how would how much would you give your Bordeaux Blanc? Ooh, uh, 8.5. So I quite liked my Pinot Noir. Mm-hmm. This is a very smooth Pinot Noir, as I'm sure you can tell at this point, because I've had a couple of glasses. I'm gonna give it a nine. This is a ultimately very delicious bottle of wine. It is more expensive than I usually get. It is. It was a sixteen dollar bottle, so like probably fourteen ish in Georgia, Texas area, mm-hmm. but which is more than I usually spend. But it was very good. So next time on deck we have season one, episode four, faithful unto death.
As always, you can find us on social media. Our official Twitter account is Wine Murder Night. You can find me on my Twitter, at Classlicity. And you can find me at SDM Rights. And you can find our podcast on Podbeams. Please go ahead and if you like it, subscribe on iTunes. Give us a five-star rating and a nice review. Tell your friends. Maybe organize a watch party for all your favorite Midsummer Murder episodes. So you can watch the episodes and then listen to our podcast. We're getting up into our almost our fifth episode, which means at episode number five, you will see a poll on our Twitter of the next four things that we're giving you the option that we can review. And then you can vote. And then whatever you guys vote for, we will end up reviewing. We also, as always, would love to thank Anton Koryokov for the use of Simple Life off the album Restart or Restart. I don't know. There's some interesting, uh, interesting capitalization going on with that album. But The Simple Life, great song. You should check them out. Excellent pianist. We'll talk to you next time.